Welcome to another message from the teaching team at Elevation Church Australia. For more information about our church, service times and locations, visit elevationchurch.com.au. It actually was supposed to be Chris preaching this morning, but you have to put up with me again. Uh, he'll be on in two weeks' time, uh, unless he's a close contact again, or you know, all that, all that, all that, all that sort of thing. We we change worship teams about three times this week, um, so it's it's awesome. That was even before Sunday, so uh, it's it's a fun season to live in as we just embrace what God has for us. Uh, go with the flow, flexibility, adaptability are the key things at this time. But we're here this morning, and so we're in this week three series called Paradox, which is all about the paradox of Jesus Christ being the King and uh, divine over all, but then also that He humbled Himself as a servant and that He gave His life on the cross for us. And what a, what a great concept to be speaking about as we start to you know, move in and head towards Easter. And so I'll give you the catch up. It's not like Netflix. You can't press skip recap. So if you've been here every week, you just have to, just have to put up with it. But verse, uh, verse one, week one, we talked about um, that Jesus is God. Sounds pretty simple, but it's actually pretty revolutionary that Jesus came and announced in the book of Mark, which is what this series is based on, that, that, that I am God. And not only am I God, but I'm God, I'm part of this, uh, what we call the Godhead, or the word that we use is Trinity, which is three in one. That God is one God, but He's three unique persons in that. And because of that, we serve a God who uh, has always been in perfect, eternal relationship with Himself. And it's out of that perfect uh, self-sacrificing, giving love of God is. That's, that's how we live. So we live out of this relationship with this amazing God. And so He didn't create humanity out of a need for relationship, out of loneliness or some sort of deficiency, but He created humanity, this is God, to, to give joy because he, had, because he had joy and He had love to give. So that was week one. Week two, uh, last week we talked about that Jesus has power that this is uh, displayed through His authority to speak to the storm and to calm the seas in Mark chapter 4. And we're not taken by surprise whenever we face challenges or tough circumstances, but rather we place our focus on the object of our faith, that's Jesus. We don't place our focus on our ability to believe, but we place our focus on Jesus. He is the one. He is the foundation. He's the one who will never fail us. He's the all-powerful, almighty God. And so we're reminded that oftentimes, and maybe you're feeling it right now, is that external storms that are around us often reveal the internal storms that are within. Like, why, you know... Why am I so grumpy at the moment? Or why am I so tense? Or what, 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 what is going on? Well, there's probably something externally that has exposed something internally that we don't just get all sad and depressed about ourselves about, but we bring it to God. It's an opportunity that something's been revealed and we get to bring it to God and say, God, I need your transforming power to come and fill my life. So that's the, that's, that's the catch up. Um, now we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. 
and it's about halfway through, well, it is halfway through the book of Mark because it has 16 chapters. And this is a pivotal book. This is where, we, this is where uh, the book of Mark changes directions. And I don't know about you, but we all know that one turn can make a significant difference. Now, there's some young people who won't remember this, but who remembers the time before uh, Google Maps and Apple Maps and whatever Samsung's use? I don't know. We don't talk about that. But yeah, who, who remembers that? Who's old enough? To remember that, like back when you actually had to know where you were going, not just be able to type in an address and then listen to the lady telling you, you know, turn right, turn left. No, I'm not talking about your wife sitting next to you. I'm talking about the Google, the Google map person, right? So we remember that time. I remember particularly for me an occasion, I think the year was 2002. Uh, some of you weren't born then, but that's, that, that's okay. And uh, so it was, it was way back there. So it was a Sunday um, I was at church and I was excited, yes, about church, but I was also excited because we were going for a snowboarding trip after church on a Sunday night. And so at that time, I lived in New South Wales, a place called Maitland, which is just inland from, um, from Newcastle. And so we were going to make the six and a half hour drive after church Sunday night because we were good Christians that went morning and night and then went to the snow. Anyway, so we we're, were going to make this six and a half hour drive to Perisher to... Um, to, to snowboard for the next three days. And so that was pretty exciting. So did our thing Sunday night, got in the car. Obviously, you know, no Google Maps back then. Maybe, you know, if it was really fancy, it'd be like a, you know, sat navigation, but there wasn't in my, you know, 1980s white laser bubble back hatch that I was, that I was in at that time. And so drove from there, uh, picked up a friend of mine on the Central Coast and went to join some other mates who had left earlier from Sydney. So they were already there. And I remember we got directions from um, a really detailed person who basically just said, said, look, just head towards Canberra. When you get near Canberra, you'll see the sign for Jindabyne. Take that exit and just follow the signs and you're there. And, you know, being typical, you know, young men, we're like, oh, we know where we're going, so you don't need to ask anyone. So you just jumped in the car and went for it. And so I remember driving and it was getting uh, late at night. We're coming up and we see the exit to exit off to Canberra. And we're like, okay, no, no, friends said, you know, wait for the sign. And so we drive past the exit. We keep going. And we keep going and it's getting later and it's probably, you know, because we're a bit slow because we're, you know, 20-year-old men. And so we get, we, 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 we go along and it's probably an hour past the Canberra exit and we think, oh, this doesn't seem right. Like, there's no sign yet. Maybe we should call them and find out if we've, you know, done something incorrectly here. And so we call um, my friend, remember, very non-detailed and he's like, we're like, hey, we went past the exit for Canberra like an hour ago. We haven't seen any sign. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're supposed to take the Canberra exit and then you see the sign. We're like, great. So, you know, illegal U-turn on the freeway back and then, and, and then we're there. But who knows that one turn can make a big difference. I'm sure you've got a story, something like that as well. But the turn that we're talking about today is found in verse 31 of the book of Mark, chapter 8. It's Jesus speaking, and it says this. It'll be on the screen behind me there. It says, He then began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man, which is a name for Himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, we read that and, you know, if we know the story of Easter, we know what's coming up. We're like, yep, Jesus died, came, you know, rose again from the dead. No big deal. But, but for the people at the time, 
This was complete, a completely unexpected turn in the wrong direction from their point of view. You see, the previous four verses, so just before, just before that, we'll read them in a second, Jesus had been making sure that the disciples were on board with his teaching and his demonstrating to them for the first, four, four, um, four, sorry, for the first eight chapters. So what he, what he does is he asks them these questions. We'll read it now. So this is the previous verses. Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So, so this is Jesus. He's doing like the, this is like the, uh, the midterm summary test. Okay, are, are my students getting what I'm talking about? And, and he's happy with the first part anyway. That was the summary of the first eight chapters. Okay, who do people say I am? But more importantly, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this um, revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus hears that but then he warns them not to tell anyone. Why, why, why would we, why would Jesus, and remember the Bible says that he warns them, not just like a little hint, not just implies, not just, you know, he actually says, now don't tell anyone about this. Like, why would Jesus do this? Is he going for some sort of, you know, reverse psychology type sort of deal where he's like, okay, if I tell them not to do it, then they will do it, and, it's a, and this will be great. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. I think that Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone yet because they had only got half the picture of who he was. They understood that he was king, that he was Lord of all. They knew who, who Jesus was, but he was about to teach them in these next eight chapters of Mark about what he was going to do. And the first thing they heard they weren't too happy about. Remember, we just read it before, but I'll read it again. This is 30, verse 31 and 30, through to 33. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty strong rebuke. Like I've been told off before, but I've never had the Son of God call me Satan. I, I, I don't know about you, but it's like fairly, fairly full on, right? But then Jesus gives him the why. He says, because you are only concerned, Peter, with human thinking about how this will work, about how it, this will produce freedom and liberty for, for, for Israel that's been promised for many years. You see, beforehand, um, never before had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. It, it didn't make sense. This Messiah that had been promised for years was supposed to come and defeat evil and injustice for all. And it seemed ridiculous to them that this, that this Son of God, that this Messiah would come and rescue them and, and, and would have to die. That's why Peter rebuked him. See, no one, wanted, no one wants to choose to suffer, to die, to, to lose or to fail. 
Peter, like all the other Jews, from his mother's knee had been told that the Messiah would rescue them. But then, if the disciples weren't already completely freaked out, Jesus goes on to teach this. This is the next verse, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. I don't know about you, but that really did just take a big turn. You see, verse 35, Jesus is saying, whoever wants to save their life, and the original word for, for life there, because the majority of the New Testament was written in Greek, and so the original Greek word there uh, is the word psyche, which is where we get our word psychology from. Uh, it denotes your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct. And so Jesus is not saying, I want you to lose your sense of being an individual person. Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. That, that's why he follows up in verse 36 with, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but lose their soul? You see, every culture points to certain things and says, if you have this, if you gain that, if you acquire this, then you'll have a self. Then you will know that you are valuable. See, oftentimes traditional cultures would say you're nobody unless you gain the you know, respectability and legacy of, of family and children. You know, individualistic cultures tend to say that you're nothing unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings money and reputation and status. Regardless of the difference of culture, every culture identifies, sorry, says that identity is performance and achievement based. So this doesn't mean that the respectability and legacy of family is bad. It also doesn't mean that career and achievement and, and just getting stuff done is bad. But what Jesus is saying is that none of that is never enough to build the foundation of your life on. That's why I've mentioned you know, several times over the last month or so that we don't look inside to find our true selves. As much as you know, modern pop psychology and Instagram posts tell us, that's, that's not where we find it. We find who we truly are. It comes from outside of you. It comes from the identity that God gives you. If we're going to use a fancy word, it's transcendent. It comes not from within us, but from somewhere else. That's our identity is found in God alone. You see, because when we place our trust in worldly identities, it actually puts you at the mercy of others loving and recognizing you. You know, if I achieve this, I'll be recognized and therefore, that will build my identity and, and, and I'll, have, I'll have something solid. Or if my, you know, maybe it's more a traditional culture. If I marry the right person or I have the right number of children or this is, this is where I am, then that will identify me as a someone. But all of those things rely on someone else. They all rely on something else telling us and giving us value. But the problem is that everyone and everything will fail you 
but Jesus never will. That's, that's why we look to Jesus for our identity. That's why we build our life on the rock that is Jesus Christ. You see, this thinking is completely radical. That's why the gospel is revolutionary because he's a king who went to a cross for you and therefore we can submit out of love. We can submit out of love and trust in him. You see, Jesus, he gave himself utterly for you so that then we can give ourselves utterly to Him. But you see, we have, we have a choice to make. And even though we do have those, I'm sure we could all talk about those you know, decisive or key moments in our lives, that, that lie in the sand where we stepped over and made a decision for Christ or where this happened and we responded this way and it, and it, and it set you know, a whole bunch of things in motion. Um, even though we do have those moments and those encounters uh, in our lives, it's more about the choices that we make each and every day. The choice is this, will I take the turn with Jesus and embrace Him not only as the Almighty King, not only as the miracle worker who's able to feed the 5,000, who's able to walk on water, who has the power over the wind and the waves, who raises and um, you know, forgives a paralyzed man, who casts out demons, who heals someone else with a, with a withered hand. All those things happened in Mark chapter 8. Oh, sorry, all those things happened in the first eight chapters of Mark. And then... There's the turn. Then there's the turn. Then there's the, there's the, will we take this turn and follow Jesus into a life that lays down ourselves, lays down our desires and follow Him? You see, so often, and, and, I, and I know from, from my life it's true as well, we, we, we sometimes stay in the first eight chapters of Mark all the time. We could, when we do that, we see Jesus as a powerful teacher or a miracle worker who can do things to make our lives better. So, you know, like, I'm sick, I'm going to pray, God, heal me. I'm in a storm, I'm going to cry out, God, would you, would you come and save me? And, and when we just live like that, even though we should and we should believe God for miracles, we should be requesting Jesus to come and, um, and intervene in those situations. But when we just live there, what happens is Jesus becomes just an ad on to the life we have already built and we just want Him to come in and, and, and help us out a little. Can you just make my life a little bit better? Things have taken, you know, have gone a bit tough. Can you just come in and help me? And God does want to do that. But as we grow up into maturity, into who God has called us to, He wants us to follow Him each and every day because there's a greater purpose that Jesus has called us to here. Some here, like me and my trip to the snow, You've received some, some dodgy directions from people. You've, you've missed the turn and it doesn't matter what age, doesn't matter what stage of life that you're in, but you've missed the turn and, and you've thought that following Jesus was about Him getting on board with my vision and my purpose and my life rather than us getting on board with what God has, what His vision for us is and what His purpose is for our lives. So this morning, as we come to a close, as we start to, start to wrap up, maybe Josh can join me because I've got one point today. You're like, oh, wow, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel this week. No, no, just, just one, just, just one. Really simple, really simple, but, but I believe really key that I know helps me and can continue uh, to help us. And, and it's simply this, is number one is this, pray first, not last. 
Pray first, not last. Challenge yourself. How often can you go to God first instead of trying to work out everything else in your own strength? I, I know for me, I consistently catch myself trying to work out everything in my own strength, fail, and then think, ah, oh, maybe I should ask God. Maybe I should see what He wants from this situation. Maybe I should get on track and in line with God, just not what I think. You know, maybe for you here in your family life, what are some areas in your family that you could bring to prayer first before trying to work them out yourself? In your work or maybe your study environment, is our first response to complain about people and try and, you know, work it so they don't annoy us or work it so, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is? Or do we bring them first in prayer to God? What about with some friendship challenges that we might find ourselves in? No matter, you know, teenager ones, adult ones, who knows adults still have friendship challenges? What? Can you believe it? Come on, let's be honest, we do. But is your first step when you face one of those to find someone to talk to who will just agree with you and tell you how bad the other person is and what's going on is not fair and all those, all those sorts of things? Or do you bring it first to God and allow Him to adjust the areas in your life that need to be adjusted? You see, prayer shouldn't be a last resort. It should be our first response. Not a last resort, but our first response. In fact, you know what prayer does? Prayer actually sets our response. It's, it's, out, it's coming to Him first, coming to God first and saying, this is going on. And I find as I do that and then listen to His voice, what happens is He sets what my response would be. He fills me with His power. He fills me with His grace, with His strength to say, hey, this is the direction that I have for you. You see, most of the time when I go to God uh, in prayer with a situation that needs to change, I don't often pray and then God says, hey, you know what? I'll sort it all out for you. Go sit on the lounge, watch some sport, you know, eat a burger, have a great time. I, I, I've got this for you. That, that's not usually God's response to me. When I pray and I bring it to Him, He fills me with hope. He fills me with strength. But also, He gives me a direction. Or I feel a hint from God. Oh, okay. That was actually because I was an idiot. Okay, I need to, I need to change this or, or transform this. Or I bring it to God and there's just like a little key that opens up a situation. Okay, maybe I can go to that person now. Or maybe I can do this. Or maybe I can believe that God is doing this. Maybe I need something changed in my thinking and the way that I've approached it before. Why? Because prayer should be our first response and our last resort. And prayer actually sets that response. You see, when we go to God first, what He does is He speaks to us about what we can do, but it's not in our own strength. It's fueled and it's led and it's directed by Him. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in a place called Philippi, he writes this, it's in the New Testament as well. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is the message uh, version of this Scripture. He says, Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions 
and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns before you know it. A sense of God's whole, sorry, letting, I did the full stop in the wrong place. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Come on, how powerful is that? It's amazing what happens when Christ displaces worry from the centre of your life. You see, my encouragement for you this morning is as we take the turn with Jesus, as we understand that Jesus is not just, you know, a, you know, Aladdin genie in the bottle, you know, his three wishes. First rule is you can't wish for unending wishes, second wishes, you know, never ending pack of Tim Tams or whatever, whatever it is. But Jesus is not like a genie in a bottle ready to just make our wishes come true. He has power, He has authority, He is the King, He is overall, but also He's a Saviour and a servant who humbled Himself and went to the cross. And He invites us to take that same turn with Him to the cross, to lay down our lives, to lay down our agendas and to get on board with His agenda. So this week, I'd love to, and obviously we'd hope it continues after this week, but I'd love to encourage you. Can you challenge yourself to, to pray first, not last? Pray first, not last. You know, I've found even recently over the last probably 18 months, and to be really honest, I probably used to um, think of some of this maybe, you know, being a little bit, a little bit too, you know, super spiritual or something like that. But even like small choices, like really small choices, I've just found uh, such a, a power in going, okay, God, what do you want me to do here? In this, in this situation, in this, um, many of you know part of uh, the work I do is um, in chaplaincy at a school. I know that sounds like church and ministry and it, and it, and it, and it sort of is, but, but sometimes I look at my list of students and I could have all the human ways to go through all this one, you know, is facing this or this is their home situation or I saw this one three weeks ago, but, you know, so I probably, you know, I can go through all the human ways and the human ways to prioritise it. But often I find myself, okay, God, who is it for today? Who is it? Who is it for right now? And it's amazing that when I do that and actually listen to God and His voice, something happens and it was like the right person at the right time. So you might not be a school chaplain. We have a few in our church, so you may be. Um, but, you know, may, maybe for you it's like you're a manager at work and there's, you know, six direct reports that you need to meet with this week. Maybe it's just saying, okay, God, who, who, who first? Maybe it's about them. Maybe it's about you. Maybe it's about an entirely different situation. Maybe you're a teacher in this place and, I don't know, each week you have a focus student or something like that. Imagine if we prayed about that and didn't just go through a list, roll, I don't know how teachers do it, you know, surname, A through to Z. But imagine if we prayed and said, okay, God, who is it this week? Who, who is it this week? I, I don't know what your work role is like. I'm not sure um, if you're working or studying or retired or whatever it is. But what I've found is without being like over the top, like, you know, drive to the end of the street, okay, God, left or right. <laughs> I feel like God will just laugh at you and make you go left the whole time and you'll just like circle around. But in the small things, 
There's something about a pattern that builds in our life of praying first, not last. Speaking of prayer, let's bow our heads, close our eyes in prayer.